Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. This episode continues the story of Victoria and Albert, which we started in the third anniversary special and the last episode. If you haven't listened to those, I suggest you do before listening to this one. I want to say a huge thank you to Cara from Time Travel Talks for her kind iTunes review. Quote, this is a splendidly researched and excellently produced show. It presents and contextualizes the most important people, events and inventions during the Victorian era. Great history that is well presented and diligently researched. End quote. Thank you, Cara. And Cara is actually literally the nicest person on the internet. And if you like history, you should totally follow her on Twitter. As a potential suitor, Albert had a lot more going for him than the cliches of him would suggest. His father was Duke Ernest of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, whose sister we've already met. She was Victoria's mother, Victorie, the Duchess of Kent. That made Albert and Victoria first cousins. He was born in 1819 at Schloss Rossigno in Bavaria. This was to be his childhood summer home on a hill in a romantic-style castle chalet surrounded by acres of countryside, landscaped in the fashionable English style near the river Itz in Rodetel, only a few kilometres northeast of Coburg. Duke Ernest I had it rebuilt in this new historical romantic style and it was described as full of, quote, princely splendour with rural simplicity, end quote, from the castle's official website. That, of course, is the rural simplicity of a rich man's fantasy, not one with straw, leaking roofs and manure, as the common people experienced it. To continue the fantasy, the Duke had himself painted as a medieval knight, decorated the castle in the medieval revival style, and had a library containing chivalric novels, including authors like Sir Walter Scott. But in reality, he was a serial womanizer, adulterer, and frequently visited prostitutes. His good looks, wealth and charm guaranteed him success with the ladies. When Albert was born, his grandmother fondly said, quote, he looks about like a little squirrel with bright blue eyes, end quote. Throughout his young life, his eyes and quick, clever looks were remarked on. He was quite a family favourite and captivated visitors. In the first few years, he and his brother Ernest were doted on by both their grandmothers, who enjoyed a friendly competition to care for the boys. Yet it wasn't a perfect childhood. When he was four, it was time for him to switch to a male tutor, although he remained attached to his loving mother. According to the officially sanctioned biography by Sir Theodore Martin, approved by Queen Victoria herself, Albert's mother and father separated in 1824 and formally divorced in 1826. It goes on to note that she died in 1831, but that the princes remained affectionate to her fond memory. I'll divert from the official biographical line here because it is really glossing over events. Albert's mother was Princess Louise Saxe-Gotha Altenberg. She married Albert's father, 
on the 31st of July, 1817. She was only 17 years old, whilst the groom was 32. You can see this was going to be a difficult marriage from the start with such a huge age gap. She was regarded as beautiful, romantic and very clever. Throw in a womanizer, husband, scheming advisors, all the rest, and you have a recipe for scandal and disaster. Naturally, the events in the household would lead to accusations that Albert was illegitimate, that his father was really an army officer. No, it was really Uncle Leopold. No, it was a groom. No, it was a secret Jewish army officer. No, it was Duke Ernest who was having a homosexual affair with his chief advisor and covering it up by sleeping with other women, driving Albert's mother to the arms of another nobleman. I think we can knock these off in fairly short order too. Not all of them were raised in Albert's lifetime. The ones that were raised in Albert's lifetime simply weren't believed. There's no way in hell the British government or wrong establishment would have touched Albert with a barge pole if they gave any serious credibility to any rumours. And frankly, none of the ones that I've just outlined stand up to any serious scrutiny. Albert was conceived in 1818 and born in 1819. Any sexual activity must have occurred in the seven to nine month frame before he was born. Any sexual activity that his mother had after that with a lover is irrelevant. In 1820, Alexander von Hanstein, a nobleman, became equerry, that is a senior household attendant, to Duke Ernest. He and the princess began to have an affair. As you can see from the timeline, accusations that he was Albert's real father simply don't work. He would have had to have known and had sex with the princess in the 1818 window, but he didn't even know her. By 1824, the marriage had broken down. With immense arrogance and double standards, Duke Ernest had become jealous and possessive of his wife. He was furious about the affair and determined to get rid of her. The princess was persuaded to sign a separation agreement. The whole family was still at Schloss Rossenau in September. Their departure for the city had been delayed as the children were both sick with whooping cough. It was now that matters came to a head. After days of tears, the Duchess Louise was almost bundled out of the family home and would never see her children again. Albert was distraught to lose his mother, especially in such harsh and confusing circumstances. After the separation, he was known to run into corners, hide whenever strangers visited. Albert's father, the Duke, did love his two sons, but he was often distant or distracted. He'd happily share breakfast with them or stories, or take them shooting when they were young, but he was still an 18th century aristocrat and hedonist at heart. So it seems to have remained a distant relationship, with tutors filling key roles. So like Victoria, Albert had had a difficult childhood that included remoteness, but it wasn't anything like on her level of terrible. It had moments of genuine happiness and closeness. Luckily, Uncle Albert was well aware of the limits of his brother as a parent and dispatched the brilliant Baron Stockmar to sort things out. Stockmar immediately recommended a renowned tutor called Johann Florschlitz to take charge of Albert. 
Albert had many private tutors as he grew up in the isolated ducal mansion in the wilds or during stays in town. Florships nurtured the young prince's intellectualism, tactfully dealt with Albert's tears and tantrums when he fell short of self-imposed perfectionism and managed Albert's obsession with health, illness and death. Albert, throughout childhood, was noted as being calm, hard-working and imposing high standards on himself. Acts he perceived as either dishonest or unjust could reduce him to a rage and his innate compassion extended to acts of charity that were not common amongst the children of the nobility. One of his tutors was the stunningly brilliant Lambert Adolphe Jacques Quatelet. Lambert held a PhD in mathematics. His staggeringly vast intellect worked in areas from astronomy to statistics to criminology to sociology. He founded the first Royal Observatory in Brussels and invented the Body Mass Index, BMI, that we all know and love today. It would take a whole show to cover his vast range of accomplishments and Albert soaked up as much as he could. In later life, Albert retained a fondness for his old tutor and got hold of a photo of Lambert taken in 1860. By adolescence, Albert was designing his own educational times tables and at 16, he was busy writing what he titled Essay on the Mode of Thoughts of the Germans, a hefty document tracing the development of German civilization and foreshadowing Albert's passionate dream of a unified, civilised and humanitarian Germany. He found the endless social engagements arranged by his father deeply tiring. Yet whilst he might have wished he was reading a book instead of going to parties, events like this were deeply important. Aristocratic and intellectual circles in early 19th century Germany were small and overlapping, meaning that some of the key figures knew each other. So, Albert knew Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn knew Max Müller. Müller knew Brockenhaus, who knew Schlegel, but who also studied under the famous Bopp and others. Many of these are experts in the rising fields of Sanskrit and Orientalism. They, in turn, moved in French and British intellectual circles, as well in mixing ideas with the famous naturalist von Humboldt. The impact of German intellectualism and romanticism would weigh heavily on British Victorian thought, including British Orientalism, in turn both feeding into the construction of the British Victorian Empire and also being fed by it. When Müller felt he had exhausted his German resources, he moved to London to collaborate with British experts on Sanskrit and crucially to access the magnificent archives of the Honourable East India Company. There were attempts to link Anglican and German church reforms to allow for greater accommodation of science in the church, whilst Mueller's old friend Bunsen became a Prussian ambassador and used his connections with Mueller to sway strategy at the East India Company in the late 1840s. Mueller eventually ended up lecturing at Oxford and his work influenced George Eliot when she wrote Middlemarch. Oxford University was heavily influenced by German philosophy and thought 
becoming a gateway for Kant and Hegel to enter the English intellectual mainstream. In later life, Müller would come to write the biography of Baron Stockmar and have dinners with Queen Victoria, at which Albert and Stockmar would both have come up from time to time in conversation. In turn, the imperial administrators and governors produced by Oxford University would often go on to take their views on India, formed during education, out to India itself and attempt to bash reality till it fitted the shape they expected from their educational experiences. What I'm emphasising here is the huge interconnections between Britain, Germany and empire. It is important not to be misled and assume Albert was coming from a small provincial backwater. He absolutely wasn't. And Germany, even if it didn't exist as a nation, existed as an idea and was heavily tied to Britain. The image of the German intellectual was a blessing for Albert in many ways. But it would also cause him difficulties with the British population in general. After meeting Victoria for the first time in 1836, Albert went to the University of Bonn to hone his talents. He studied philosophy, law, economics, the history of art, and became a keen sportsman, especially riding and fencing. He followed this up with a tour of Italy to study art and music. These studies would stand him in good stead. During his regrettably short life, he went through key areas of British life and politics like a determined hurricane vast range of areas attracting his interests and his formidable organisational talents. You can thank him for the foundation of the Royal Colleges that would become the world-famous Imperial College London. He also learnt to dance well and filmed out his figure. He was no longer the slightly awkward 17-year-old. He was soon 20 and a much more enticing prospect. He was also able to ride, fence and shoot Musically, he had not only learnt piano and organ to concert standard, but also became an extremely good choral singer and sang bass in Beethoven's Der Glorik Augenblick. He also mastered thorough bass, also known as figure bass or basso continuo. This was a form of music where a bass line was partially written for the symphony and then the performer had to improvise the rest of the bass beats. If Albert was alive today, I just know he would have played bass in a jazz band and dabbled in prog rock before writing music for the West End. Through his whole life, music was a constant passion up to the end. Any musician or musical society that worked with him quickly recognised his talents, both a composer and as an organiser of musicians. During his life, he arranged UK premiere performances of greats like Schubert and Wagner. Interestingly, Jenny Lind, better known these days from the film The Greatest Showman, was one of the featured soloists. Mendelssohn felt Albert was a brilliant organist. Clearly, Albert was more in the mould of the classic German romantic prince than the boring candidates from the House of Orange. The German romantic surroundings that the prince had grown up in would dovetail neatly with Victoria's own views on the landscape and help them both fall in love with Scotland. When he returned from a trip 
in 1839, he found, neatly placed in his room for him to see, a portrait of Victoria that she'd sent to surprise him. It was a hint of the future. By October 1839, Albert was ready to return to tie Britain more closely to a German state. Ironically, that very same year, the Belgium and Dutch people ended their war in a formal treaty called the Treaty of London, signed by King Leopold, good old Uncle Leopold. It said that Britain and the other European powers would permanently guarantee the neutrality of Belgium. That scrap of paper echoed through history and tore the close union of Britain and Germany apart, as in 1914, it was the violation of this scrap of paper that guaranteed Britain going to war with Germany. Such pebbles start landslides. We do need to be a bit cautious, though, when we look at Elbert. There's a lot known about him. There are plenty of excellent primary sources, but there is the problem of Victoria. When Albert died, she turned him into a saint and so became very selective in her memory of him. That's something to just be aware of. When he was coming back to Britain, Albert knew that a royal courtship and marriage were in the offing, and it weighed heavily on his mind. He had reservations and deep feelings of his own. Albert brought some particular qualities to the relationship. One was his fundamental, almost excessive honesty, which could lead to problems but meant Victoria could actually rely on her husband, who told her what he felt was true, whether pleasant or not. Another was his sexual fidelity, not a given in aristocratic circles in the early 19th century. That meant no heartbreaks over other women, no illegitimate children, no rumours to quash. He was steeped in the romantic movement. He was passionate, but contained. His love of romantic music was in many ways rebellious. Sounds odd to us, thinking that listening to classical music could be rebellious or trend-setting, but it's only because it sounds old, because we're used to it. It has been around for centuries and has the label classical dumped on it. When Chopin, Liszt and the other romantics composed, they were breaking the musical boundaries of the time. Many combined music with political radicalism, even extremist nationalism in some forms. When it was written, it was new, cutting edge, and even sometimes subversive. So I do think it is important to consider the young Albert in the light of German romanticism, and that his love of music, art, his wide-ranging intellectual interests, made him so much more appealing a match than the false stereotype of the stuffy older Albert. Indeed, In the realm of jewel-making and art, the early Victorian period was known as the Romantic Age after the love between the royal couple and their passion for romantic jewellery. Yet it dovetailed with the Romantic movement as well. Albert certainly knew how to write a passionate letter. For instance, this one in October 1839, quote, My dearest, most beloved Victoria, I am so touched by the evidence of trust that you give me in sending your letters, and by the so affectionate sentiments that you express towards me therein, that I scarcely know how to reply to you. How have I earned so much love and so much warm-hearted kindness? 
I am still unable to accustom myself to the truth of all that I see and hear, and can only believe that heaven sent down an angel to me, whose radiance is intended to brighten my life. May I succeed in making you quite happy, as happy as you deserve to be. With body and soul, I remain forever your slave, your devoted Albert. End quote. Even the engagement ring Albert eventually designed for her was a romantic one. An emerald-encrusted serpent eating its own tail to symbolise eternal love. As an engagement gift, he gave Victoria three volumes of privately printed Leider und Romanzen, and by 1842, a total of 31 songs had been neatly copied into a volume which he entitled Ausflash Musikalischer Gefahrli, Outpouring of Musical Feelings, all written by him, and probably pronounced properly as well. Apologies for that. So he couldn't throw around diamond boxes like Duke Alex, but he could give a personal gift that he'd worked on for months, one that was infinitely harder than just buying diamonds. Have a listen to one of Albert's musical compositions now. That's not like knocking together five chords on a guitar and saying you're beautiful, you're beautiful, over and over. That's a full orchestral work, needing scores for everything, from brass to strings to vocals. Takes more than a couple of weeks and a session musician to put that together. As you look at this courtship, a proper appreciation of English and German romanticism, the paintings, the music, the literature, the family ties, all show how fundamentally close British and German culture was. Victoria and Albert traded letters in German. They spoke to each other in German. Victoria was remarked as having an extremely soft, sweet voice, but she was known to have more of a German accent on some of her words sometimes. So became Zuh. Yet how much and how German she really sounded is a matter of fierce contention. Albert learned English as well as German and was fluent. Victoria kept her diaries in English. Anne had had elocution lessons. Frustratingly, her voice was recorded only twice. One recording was made and is a museum piece, almost too decayed to identify human voice. The other was recorded to send a message to the Ethiopian emperor with instructions to the British ambassador to destroy it after use. We don't know if he did, Probably it has been lost to history. So infuriating to be so close to hearing her, yet so far. Still, let's treat ourselves. That recording in 1888 was made on wax. So, less than ideal. Experts have remastered it. It is faint, almost unintelligible, but you can make out the last few words, including the slight V on the wonderful. So there you have it, a tiny, tiny appearance from Queen Victoria herself, words spoken and recorded 132 years ago by a woman who knew Dickens, Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Buffalo Bill Cody, 
Alexander Graham Bell, and even back further to George IV and the Duke of Wellington, you heard the words of someone who was alive when Napoleon was, the Empress of a quarter of the world. And when I described it, did you also notice how things at Albert's childhood home borrowed and shared cultural touchstones with Britain, the medieval imagery, connections to the great artists, novels by Sir Walter Scott, an English landscaped garden, cross-fertilisation between the English, Scottish and Germanic cultures was immense. Whilst France might have been seen as the most civilised part of Europe, with the oldest true civilization, according to many British nobles, Britain actually sat far more comfortably with Germany. To the early Victorian politician, it was perfectly natural. Being German was seen as almost second best to being British. It took two world wars to mentally shift the long-standing British antagonism from France to Germany. This is not to say Albert was welcomed as a prospective husband for Victoria without some reservations. He actually had a few of his own to start with. Since the first meeting, he had been painfully aware of Uncle Leopold's ambitions for his dynastic marriage. Reports filtering back to him about Victoria mentioned her pride, stubbornness, temper and love of parties, not to mention Lord Melbourne. Albert was a little concerned when Victoria had learned of the impending second visit of her cousin Albert. She had written to Uncle Leopold to say, quote, If I should take Albert, I can make no final promise of this, for, at the very earliest, any such event could not take place till two to three years hence, end quote. This kind of news can't have thrilled the prince. He was being paraded to his cousin on public view on the possibility that she liked him enough to marry him. But who knew? And even if she did, she'd said he might be kept waiting for three years and she could still change her mind. Albert and his brother Ernest set off for England to meet the Queen. Ernest was hardly thrilled at a long, unpleasant journey with a grumpy Albert, then perhaps a month of being a third wheel and having to be on his best behaviour. Nasty autumn weather made the trip harder and both were immensely seasick by the time the ship reached Dover. To make matters worse, the luggage couldn't be found, but the valet had foolishly assumed it was being sorted by someone else. It wasn't. Then they had the coach ride for 63 miles to London on dreadful waterlogged English roads, with another 23 miles after that to get to Windsor. A lot was resting on this prospective marriage, and Albert would later write he was on the verge of pulling out at this point, as he was sick of the delay in making a decision. Luckily, he arrived to find Victoria inside, waiting for him at the foot of the stairs. She casually leaned over the banister rail, waved and smiled at him. She described him at that moment, quote, Albert's beauty is most striking and he's so amiable and unaffected. In short, very fascinating, end quote. This is the image of Albert you need to have in your mind when thinking about the courtship. The famous photos of the prematurely old man losing his hair and looking stuffy 
This was the romantic prince, in youth's full bloom. Victoria was captivated, noting in her diary that he had set her heart racing. Walks in the park followed. Then in the evening, the brothers played her Haydn and Mozart on the piano. More long walks followed. One evening, they got caught in a thunderstorm and had to have Victoria navigate them home using landmarks illuminated in the storm. Very romantic in all senses of the word. This was followed with a late night of dancing. The next day, Victoria told Lord Melbourne she had decided not to wait for marriage after all. Lord M nodded in happy agreement, advised that Albert be made a field marshal but not a lord and the couple should marry in February 1840. Oh, and that as Queen, it was Victoria who had to do the proposing. She found it funny, but agreed. On the 15th of October, 1839, Albert received a summons to join the Queen in private. Quote, At about half past twelve, I sent for Albert. He came to my closet where I was alone, and after a few minutes, I said to him, that I thought he must be aware why I wished him to come here, and that it would make me too happy if he would consent to what I wished to marry me. End quote. Albert said yes, of course. He can have been under no illusions about why he was being summoned, and given the closeness that had sprung up, it seems he had fallen in love as quickly as Victoria. Victoria summoned Ernest to hear about his brother's good news. Then Albert was sent to inform Baroness Lazen. Pointedly, Queen V didn't tell her mother, the Duchess of Kent, about the engagement for another month. When the time came to break the news personally, the Duchess threw herself into a weeping hug and told Victoria that although she hadn't sought her mother's blessing, she had it. The Duchess then turned to Albert to tell him how lucky he was since Victoria had so many suitors. The Duchess then returned to her apartments in a less than joyous mood. If Victoria married so young, custom dictated she was to live with her husband and leave her mother's household. In this case, though, it meant the Duchess would be asked to pack, as Victoria was hardly going to move out of Windsor Castle for her mother. Naturally enough, the Duchess immediately wrote several letters to her daughter asking about where she was going to live. Victoria was entirely uninterested. She was a young queen in love, and Mother Dearest had burnt so many bridges over the years, she was probably an insurance risk. Albert, meanwhile, was a bit more apprehensive as he listened to Victoria outlining their future. He was dedicating himself to the service of the queen and the British state, which meant giving up life in Germany as well as his beloved brother and grandmother. Besides, Victoria had a very different view of Albert's role to him. He was to be a husband, lover, an object to admire and lust after, especially when he wore those skin-tight white pantaloons with no underwear. But she would be ruler, and Lord M would be her intellectual partner. It doesn't take a great deal of knowledge of human nature to see that an intellectual workaholic like Albert was never going to be happy as the ornamental husband. He was not going to simply hang on her arm as required, provide children and enjoy a life of luxury on 
Secretary of States. He was driven and his stubbornness could even match Queen V's. When Victoria announced news of the engagement to the Privy Council, the action was mixed. Some felt Albert was a fine choice. He was a known intellectual, musician and poet, and had excellent artistic taste. He was a solid nobleman from Germany, which meant he wasn't French or Austrian, and therefore, by definition, better as they saw it. Others felt that he was inexperienced and poor from a minor German state. Surely a richer, older man could have been found with more diplomatic benefits attached. Many just fretted about his role. They wanted to know exactly what a prince consort did. Surely the Queen didn't intend to, you know, actually be Queen. The Spectator magazine called him a gilded puppet. Some were deeply concerned about cousins, especially first cousins, getting married and having children. There was plenty of anti-German racism too. The papers had biting cartoons about Prince Albert being introduced to a bathtub for the first time. One magazine acidly said that Albert would no longer have to make sausages for a living, which invoked the German sausage stereotype and foreshadowed the bitter Anglo-German sausage culture wars of the later 19th century. Lord M called the Germans a dirty people who smoked too much. That's thin ice when you consider that Victoria's Hanoverian family was German and she was half German herself. The German supporters were quick to point out how cultured much of Germany was and, for good measure, reminded everyone that Albert wasn't French, which at least no one could argue with. A bigger problem was the Duke of Wellington and the Tories. The Queen had failed to mention Albert's religion in the engagement announcement, and the Duke suggested in Parliament that Albert might not be Protestant. The Tories made a lot of snide comments, forcing Victoria to insert the word Protestant into the text of her announcement, and Albert had to draw up a detailed family history when he briefly returned to Germany to demonstrate his impeccable Protestant ancestry. Although, given Albert's love of history and work, that probably wasn't the worst thing he was asked to do. The couple's tempers were further frayed when the Tories restricted Albert's allowance to 30,000 instead of the 50,000 pounds Victoria had asked for. The Duke of Wellington notably failed to support Albert's allowance in Parliament. Albert wrote a furious letter to Victoria and she agreed that the awful peal on the Tories was simply unbearable. The stormy debate over Albert continued. Victoria naturally wanted him to have second place in the official hierarchy of the country behind her. That would ensure Albert actually got to walk behind her at official events, rank behind her in order of precedence, and so on. The Tories refused, and Victoria blew a gasket. She stated the Duke of Wellington had behaved so badly, he wasn't coming to the wedding. Lord M wisely intervened at this point. No matter how unpopular Wellington had become, the idea of banning him from the wedding was an insult too far. Victoria finally related, and the Duke was allowed to come to the ceremony. He was not invited to the wedding banquet afterwards, so no free bar for him. The wedding was arranged pretty quickly, and Victoria's diaries 
are full of discussions about wedding planning, visits and kisses with Albert, court and society intrigue with Lord M, loathing for the Tories, a litany of letters from her mother, moaning and wheedling for things, compliments for the Rifle Regiment, and frustration about the Chartists, and the blinkered refusal of guard officers to go out of London to police rebellions in the countryside, as they felt it was too dull for a gentleman officer outside the capital. By November 1839, Victoria was already aching for the marriage and sex, as she records, quote, Dearest Albert led in, and I sat between him and Ernest, and we talked very much together, when I said to Albert we should be very, very intimate together, and that he might come in and out when he pleased. He said, Do ist sehr schon von dir. For that gentleman can es nicht schlapscht verlangen. Oh, how happy I shall be to be very, very intimate with him. End quote. And she underlines those verys. Albert was happy and in love, but determined to assert himself over the business side of things. He wanted a good allowance, and crucially, he wanted a wide pool of staff in his household, not just Whigs. He was astute enough to know Victoria's partisanship for the Whigs would go badly in the long term. He was keen to have a cadre of honourable, intelligent and honest men for his staff. He was told he was not going to be allowed to select his own German staff. Lord M offered his own private secretary, a man named Anson, as Albert's treasurer. Albert refused. Anson was appointed anyway, although Albert did get him to resign from Lord M's staff before taking up the post. Luckily, the two men became very close friends and an effective team. Albert was also denied a seat in the House of Lords and he received a joint letter from Victoria and Lord M stating he was to agree with Victoria on all matters, publicly support her government, remain out of politics and appoint government sympathisers to his staff. So basically, nod when Victoria does, never contradict the government, be a figurehead and surround yourself with government yes-men. Oh, and walk behind the Queen and the proper British Lords at official events, please. Albert eloquently replied, quote, One's opinions are not to be dictated, for an opinion is the result of reflection and conviction. You could not respect a husband who had never formed an opinion until you formed yours, and whose opinions were always the same as yours. End quote. Fundamentally, Albert was intelligent and wanted respect. He knew his own worth, and he was very clear. Personal feelings were to be clearly warned off from business. No matter how much he loved Victoria personally, business was business. He also wanted power, not court trappings or wealth or luxury or women or drink. He wanted real power because he genuinely believed that he was supposed to serve mankind and make the world a better place. And that required power. Lord M was deeply underestimating Albert and without realising it, he'd made a powerful political opponent. Albert understood Victoria needed to move beyond the Whigs and party politics, which meant Lord M and his blunders had to go. The wedding approached with frightening speed. Lord M gossiped happily with Queen Victoria. They talked about how the Grand Duke was supposed to be getting married, 
but was having an affair before he'd even made it to the altar. Lord M had chortled happily that all men did that, which Victoria deeply disapproved of. Her nerves were further frayed at Lord M's casual mention that most married men would end up eyeing up other comely women in a few years anyway, so why worry? By this point, Victoria's nerves was taut as a violin string. She fretted about the position of Albert as husband, how she would continue to do her duty. What if the marriage didn't work, or he turned out to be cruel or controlling? She worried that she would be too plain for a man as good-looking as Albert, especially if she was pregnant. Why his moustache alone was so good-looking, she'd ordered the entire cavalry in the British Army to grow identical ones to improve their looks. Then there was the great mystery of marriage and sex itself. It wasn't as though her education had included sexual biology and relationships, and she'd never had physical relations with anyone. Albert might not be much help after all. He'd turned down formative trips to the brothel with his father. Neither of them knew what they were doing. What if she got pregnant quickly? Childbirth was an extremely dangerous experience for Victorian women, and contraception was primitive at best. When the day came, on Monday the 10th of February, 1840, Victoria was resplendent in a glorious white dress. She had commissioned it from local silk dressmakers with lace from local Devon craftsmen. This provided these working people with a windfall and advertising to die for. She chose the colour white for two reasons. One was that it showcased the lace and two was that white was rare and expensive. It was a symbol of immense wealth, not sexual purity. It was usually only worn by the richest nobles at weddings. Many royals got married in silver and gold, but as queen and ruler of one of the richest nations on earth, Queen V was going to make a splash. She ordered attendees not to wear white themselves. She also wore a wreath of orange blossoms, symbolising purity, and myrtle symbolising love and domestic happiness. The outfit was dripping with jewels, a train 18 foot long, and she rode to church in a golden carriage. The heavy wind and rain lashed down, but the crowds were enormous. Even some of her stalkers turned up for time's sake. Albert looked resplendent, in skin-tight white pantaloons, I presume with underwear, a red coat of a British field marshal, with the star and collar of the Order of the Garter. It was a very British look, and it was a public statement by Albert that he was committed to being a part of his new home. He had even been naturalised as a British subject by special act of Parliament, despite the Duke of Wellington's grumbling. The ceremony went without a hitch. Victoria had insisted that the Archbishop of Canterbury leave the word obey in the vows, when he tried to take it out. She wanted a statement that Albert was her equal in many ways, and as a reminder to herself that she owed a duty to him as husband personally, not just to rule over him as queen and servant. The nation were thrilled with the ceremony. Dickens was tearful, parties were held up and down the land, and a huge wedding banquet was held. The couple finally headed off at 1600 hours, stopping at Windsor for some rest, 
some piano, and Victoria was thrilled to have been addressed by the Archbishop simply as Victoria and Albert. The names were linked forever, and in her mind, they were inseparable. Luckily for both, the wedding night fulfilled her fantasies, and she wrote about her immense satisfaction, saying, quote, He clasped me in his arms, and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty, his sweetness and gentleness. Really, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband? At half past ten, I went and undressed, and was very sick, and at twenty minutes to ten, we went to bed, of course, in one bed, to lie side by side, and in his arms, and on his dear bosom, and be called by names of tenderness, I have never yet heard used to me before, was bliss beyond belief, oh, this was the happiest day of my life, may God help me do my duty, as I ought, and be worthy of such blessings, when day dawned, for we did not sleep very much, I beheld that beautiful angelic face by my side. It was more than I can express. He does look so beautiful, in his shirt only, with his beautiful throat seen. End quote. Now, we shall leave Victoria and Albert, together, in love and on the throne. They would have much drama, and a huge amount of work ahead of them. But for now, the podcast is moving on into the 1840s. And that means we are entering the true beginnings of the Victorian era proper. It is time to explore our next topic in our series of historical earthquakes. Oh, railways were pretty big, as you know, but the next one is enormous. It is time to move beyond the shores of Britain and have our first real look at the empire. It will be a journey of contradictions, at times thrilling, adventurous, with deep philosophical discussions, but also horrifying and often sickening with numerous atrocities. It will include barbarity almost unimaginable, as well as bravery and comradeship. Above all, it will be controversial. I've often mentioned that Victoria was an empress in all but name. The Victorians were about to embark on the greatest imperial expansion seen since the Mongols, an empire on which the sun never set. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.